We're excited to be here, grateful for the invitation, and just to kind of have a chance to share the vision that we believe God is giving us for our church, for the well. And my name is Greg, as I said. My wife is Haley. She's in the back walking across, and she's got our little girl, Nora. I'm actually from, just a little bit of background real quick about us. I'm actually from Michigan. I was born here in Tawas, about three hours north, and kind of bounced around a little bit, moved down to Southgate, spent a couple years there, back up. Up to Dearborn, and then I went to college. I went to college in Nashville. She grew up in Georgia. She went to UGA, so she's very proud of their uh, football accomplishments. And um, <clears throat> we met in Nashville, started dating there, and um, then I became a youth pastor in Miami, Florida. Not Miami, Ohio. I know they're commonly mistaken. <laughs> Um, So Miami, Florida, and uh, so I was there for six years, and uh, she came down there with me. We dated for a while, got engaged, got married, had Nora before we moved back up here, and so Miami's kind of like one of those places that kind of has a landmark in your life, you know what I mean? And um, so it was really good, and then we moved. Uh, While we were in Miami, back up just a little bit, that was where God really started to put this idea of church planting in our hearts. And we just kind of figured, like, maybe one day, you know, down the road, years from now. And then um, God just kind of brought about this opportunity to come and to plant a church in Ypsilanti. And I'm sure you haven't noticed, but just in case, you know, you're you're not aware, Miami is very different um, from Ypsilanti. It's very different. It's a lot colder, you know. Um, But it's, it's good, though, right? As you can imagine, it was quite the change. And so we started processing this reality, like, God, if you're calling us to plant this church in Ypsilanti, like, what do we do? Like, where do we start? You know, like, we had never planted a church before. And so we started talking to coaches, and we started reading stuff. And it seemed like everybody gave us the first, like, the first steps were all the same. It's like, you need to get there. And then you just need to live there for a while. You just need to get to know the people, look around, listen, and see what's happening. Just get, get a feel for the community. Get a feel for what's, what's going on in the city. And so that was what we decided to do. And so um, this is, I just want to share with you, if you don't mind, just kind of what we have seen, what we've heard so far. And, um, and, and if you feel like we're completely off base, feel free to come to me later and be like, Greg, listen. I've got some news for you. You know what I mean? Because I need it. I want it. But this is what we seem to observe, okay? Just driving around, it became very clear to us that Ypsilanti is diverse in its own unique way, right? And so, like, if you go above 94 and if you go below 94, it's like two different worlds, right? And so there is a huge cultural diversity here. You have with the universities this kind of, uh, this, this university culture is very progressive, it's very liberal in some cases, and um, with that comes, uh, we, we notice this also this really strong LGBTQ presence and, and even promotion um, within Ipsy specifically, but Ann Arbor as well, and so <clears throat> we just started to look around and see what kind of signs, see what kind of things we saw. And um, we, there's a very big activism kind of culture. Like, and, and there's some good, right? Like you want justice. You want people who are being oppressed. Like we don't want that, right? So there's, there's good, good parts of that. But then there's some things that you see that you're like, I don't know, you know. 
But then on the other side of that, there's just a very rural lifestyle, you know, and there's just a very kind of, I don't want to say this, don't take this the wrong way, but kind of a country feel, right? Like we live out here, and it's kind of country, it's rural, it's, it's nice, and, and uh, more traditional, kind of like, I always think of like these signs that I see, maybe you have this sign, don't be offended, but like God, guns, and glory, or like, you know, faith, faith, family, and football, stuff like that, right? And... Um, so those are the kind of, it's just very different. It's just a kind of a very different cultures, right? And, and we're all kind of living around the same area. And, and as we started to see this diversity, we also started to see like where the gospel is needed, right? And so one of the, the clear areas that we started to come across was the LGBTQ community specifically. They don't believe that Christians are loving or caring, like, as we started just to talk to people, it just kind of became very clear, like, their opinion of you as a believer is that you are judgmental, that you do not care about them, and that you do not love them. And so that's tough. In Ypsilanti, in just like our six months, seven months living here, we've seen more people from the LGBTQ community, more pride flags, more promotion than our six years in Miami. So I don't know if you realize how big it is here, but I'm telling you it's big, right? Many of the LGBTQ community, they just, they've seen how the church at large has, has approached them, has treated them, and so they're just immediately kind of turned off from the church. And even if they have this hunger or this desire to like know God and maybe even meet Jesus, they're just like, man, I just don't know if I could step in a church. I just, I just don't think I could do it, you know, because they're afraid of how they would be treated. Now, I understand that maybe, and maybe I don't understand, you tell me, but like on the township side, more like bottom of 94, it's maybe not as big as it is north of 94, Eastern Michigan University, stuff like that. But I think if we're honest, like many of us have people in our families who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. Many of us have friends. Like this isn't just something that's out there. Like this is something that hits home for a lot of us. Right? And the gospel, the gospel need extends not just to, to them, but even to people who have a lot of experience with church, but maybe just not good experience with the church. Uh, many people in this area we, seem to just be hurt uh, by legalistic or judgmental churches. And it seems like as we start to talk to people, it's like we just hear story and story, story after story of people just saying, like, man, we went to the church. And we were there, and something happened, and, and it's just like, man, we're hurt, and we're not, we're not really wanting to go back. So we've just heard stories of how uh, families have been damaged by that, whether it's these high standards that are placed on, on the people that the leaders themselves are not really living up to, and they see that, and they're like, man, that's, that's hypocrisy right there, you know? Or whether it's like you struggling with sin, and like you, you finally like come out and tell somebody, and then they're like... Oh, you know, like they just come down with the hammer and it's like, well, I thought this was supposed to be a place where I could do that, you know? And so it just seems that there's been a lot of judgment, a lot of legalism that has caused some damage for some people who have been in the church. And some of them leave and, and, and some of them never come back. <clears throat> and so this is not surprising then, like when you look at some of the religious studies and surveys of the area, it shows that the people of Ypsilanti, they just don't trust the church. And a lot of it is because they think it is hypocritical. One of the top beliefs is that people in the church do not behave as Jesus would behave. 
Think about that for a minute. The people in the church do not behave as Jesus would behave. Now, you may be sitting there like, well, how do they know? I, I behave just, uh, maybe, you know, right? But if that's how they see the church, you can maybe understand then this next part. They think that if you have a relationship with Jesus, that does not mean you have to be a part of any church. Right? If the church doesn't behave like Jesus, I can have a relationship with Jesus and not go to church. Because those people are not behaving like him. Right? And so this is, this is interesting, right? And this is why many people just don't trust the church. They're not, and maybe they're not even really wanting to give it a chance just because they don't believe it's anything like him. Right? It's also clear that there is a huge opportunity to reach the next generation. Ypsilanti is a college town next to a bigger college town, right? And these young people, they need the gospel, and they have big questions about life, big questions about what comes after life, and about faith, and about meaning, and about purpose, and all of these things. And they just need believers who will walk with them, and not like demand answers right away, but just walk with them as they ask these questions. And so a growing number of young adults and college-age students, they have this attitude of indifference towards church, towards faith, towards the gospel, okay? This is kind of an indifference worldview. They just see it, and they're just like, ah, the church, meh. Jesus, I don't know. But, but you should have faith. Ah, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, and it's because they have these big questions, but they're just not really seeing the lives of believers show them answers. And so they're like, man, I'm looking for purpose. I'm looking for belonging. I'm looking for all these things. I want to be a part of something bigger than me. But when I look around, I'm just not really seeing that. And so they just kind of have this, eh, whatever. So as we, we kind of looked around, as we kind of, you know, prayed through this, we took all this in and we just began to pray and just listen and just be like, you know, God, who do you want us to be as a church? How will God use, uh, how will he use us to reach the people of Ypsilanti? And so <clears throat> we began to pray and we began to pray and this is what we, we heard from the Lord. As we prayed that prayer and we looked around us, we listened to the people around us, we just felt like God kept bringing us back to this passage in John 4. And you guys probably know it well, but if you do, uh, have it in your Bibles. Go ahead and open up to John 4. It's in the New Testament, fourth gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, chapter 4 we're going to kind of bounce around just a little bit. It's a lengthy passage. I'm not going to read all 42 verses, so just relax, okay? <clears throat> but just to give you a little bit of background, this is what's happening. Jesus is leaving Judea. He's on his way to Galilee. He goes through Samaria. Now, this is interesting because uh, this is not probably the preferred way. It's tough. It was and it wasn't, right? Like, it was the shortest way, and that's why it's preferred, but it was through Samaria, and the Jewish people and the Samaritans, they just kind of had a bad history. They didn't really get along. They didn't really want to be around each other. And Jews looked at them really poorly. They were just like, no, I don't want to be around them, right? And so <clears throat> Jesus goes through Samaria, one, because it's shorter, but also because he planned to be at a certain well at a certain time to meet a certain Samaritan woman. Jesus sought this woman out on purpose for a purpose, 
And as Jesus gets to the well, the time is about noon, the near the hottest part of the day. And then Jesus sees the Samaritan woman coming to the well. She gets there, or she's coming there to get water, and then this is their conversation. So look with me in verse 7. I'm going to be reading from the, the CSB version. Uh, we're going to have the passages up here, but you're welcome to follow along with your own. That's, keep me honest, you know what I'm saying? Don't trust me. I made the slides. Check your own Bible, you know what I'm saying? So starting in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Jesus begins to speak to her, and right away, right at the start, you can kind of see the situation isn't maybe normal, okay? Colin Cruz, in his commentary, he says, it is strange that she came at about the sixth hour, noon, the hottest part of the day. Normally, women came to draw water in the morning or evening, the cooler parts of the day. Makes sense, right? It is also strange that she came alone. Both these things suggest the woman felt a sense of shame and was avoiding contact with other women. Now, why did she feel shame? Why was she avoiding other women? Well, we'll get into that. We'll see. You know the story. Probably, maybe, maybe not. If not, you're in for a good one, right? It was also uncommon for a man, especially a Jewish rabbi, to talk to her and to engage in this conversation with her. And we can see how the disciples, they, they even responded to this. In, in verse 27, it just go peek real, real quick there. It says, they were amazed when they saw him talking to her. They're like, what is he doing? What is happening here? You know? Is he talking to her? Right? <clears throat> and so Jesus, he then, uh, and she's shocked too. Like, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? Like, what's going on here? Right? And so then he begins to start revealing who he is to her slowly. And he says, if you knew the gift of God, you'd be asking me for a drink. And I would give you living water. Right? And they go back and forth. But it's clear that Jesus is not just offering her like, a cup of water, right? Like he's offering her something more than just H2O. Like he's offering her eternal life. He's offering her salvation. She's just not quite picking it up yet, right? And so not, she just knows, you know, she, she even says, like, just give me this so I don't get thirsty and have to come back here, right? I don't really understand what you're trying to offer me, but I know I don't want to keep coming back to this well. I don't want to keep coming back in the heat of the day to get water. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One, I mean, it's hot, right? It's hard work, you know? And then it's dangerous, right? You're a woman. You're walking alone out of the city, out into the, to, to where this well is. Like, that's not cool. But then also, I want you to just think about this. Like, every single time she had to make that walk, it reminded her, I can't go with the other women 
I can't go when it's cooler. It was a constant reminder of her, of her sin, of her shame, of her guilt, of her past. Every single day, walking those same steps, going to get water, it was just like a constant reminder, like, this is why you have to be alone. This is why you can't walk with the other ladies. So she just wants that to end, right? And that makes sense. So the conversation in her and Jesus, between her and Jesus continues in verse 16. Jesus says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this is where things kind of take a turn, right? At first, they're just kind of having this back and forth, and she's maybe a little confused. Like, what are you talking about? Living water? It doesn't make sense. But then, Jesus says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And this is where Jesus reveals to her, like, I know you. I know you completely. I know your past. I know your secrets. I know the things you're ashamed of. I know you fully. She's had five husbands. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. Jesus displays this supernatural level of knowledge about her, and he brings into light her history and these things that have caused her shame and pain and hurt. But what's important for us to see is that he's not doing it in a way to shame her, right? He's not doing it in a way to condemn her. He's trying to show her, like, I am the Messiah, He's trying to let her see who he is. How could I possibly know this? We've never seen each other before, but I know you, right? And so she gets the message kind of loud and clear, all right? I can see you're not a normal person. You must be a prophet. And since you're a prophet, let's just uh, switch this subject real quick, and let's have a theological debate. Where should we worship, you know? And she brings up this kind of hotly contested debate between Jews and Samaritans about where they should worship. And this is interesting, right? Because she's clearly trying to like, ah, let's not talk about any of this stuff. Let's move over here. And Jesus, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't, he doesn't like, he's not like, no, 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 back here, right? Like, he, he just like, okay. And so he kind of answers her, and he says, he doesn't scold her, he just, he answers her. He says, the time is coming, it is now here, when it doesn't matter where you worship, but that you, you worship in spirit and in truth. He says, these are the kind of worshipers that God desires, and all of this is like news to her. She's like, I've never heard that in my life, strange man at the well. I've never heard that teaching anywhere. And so maybe out of frustration, maybe out of confusion, in verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I may not have all the answers. Clearly, you think you do, man, at the well. But I know the Messiah is coming, and one day he'll explain all of this. One day, he'll put an end to all these debates, all this arguing, and we'll know what's up. 
And what Jesus says next is really incredible. In verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You're waiting for that Messiah. That's me. Not me, Greg, right? Stay with me, okay? <laughs> Jesus says, I am he, okay? Now, I don't know if we really get how big this is, okay? Now, I've looked at the Gospels. I've went back and I've read, and it seems like this is the very first person that Jesus himself tells, I am the Messiah, right? Other people have said it about him. John the Baptist said it about him, right? Other people have noticed it about him, like some of the disciples, we found the Messiah, right? And they go and they tell their friends. And, but this is the first person that Jesus himself has said, I am the Messiah too. And what's interesting is he's even, he's even kept this really quiet up until this point. He's even told people not to say anything, right? <clears throat> when his mom asked him to help at the wedding, he says, my hour has not yet come, right? Even some of the people that he's been healing. In Mark 1.44, he heals a leper and Jesus tells him, don't say anything. Just go and show yourself to the priest. Don't say anything, Right? Jesus was talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a, he was a, a Pharisee, but he was like a, a strong and high, like high teacher in the Pharisees, member of the Sanhedrin council. Like he's a well-respected member of the religious society, right? If you were going to say something like I'm the Messiah, he's the guy you say it to. Right? Because that lends credibility. Listen, I know you know the scriptures, Nicodemus. Look, this is where it's talking about me. This is where it's talking about the Messiah. That's me. I'm here. Let's do this. Right? But he doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, I am the Messiah. Right? In John 2, there were many people who saw him and said they believed in him when they saw the signs that he was doing. But in John 2, 24, this is really interesting. Jesus, it says this, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. This is interesting because it's not the same thing as them not trusting him. It's Jesus saying, I'm not going to entrust myself to you. What does that mean, right? When you entrust something to someone, you are giving them the care of it, right? If I were to give you or entrust the care of my daughter to you and I let you hold her, I'm trusting that you are going to do what's right, that you are going to care for her, that you're going to keep her safe, that you're not going to like throw her anywhere, like you're going to be, you're going to do the right thing with, with my daughter, right? And Jesus says, I, I would not entrust myself, my identity, to them. Why? Because he didn't trust that they were going to do the right thing with it. They weren't going to take care of that identity that he was about to reveal with them. Why? Because they were more interested in the signs than they were the Savior. But this Samaritan woman, she's waiting for the Messiah. She's waiting for one day all of this to be cleared up, and she's, she's wanting to know the answers to all these things. And so Jesus, he entrusts himself, his identity as the Messiah to her, right? Because he knows that she is going to take care of that information 
properly in the way that it should be. And so does she? Absolutely, right? She does. She tells everyone that he is the Messiah. That's what you do with that information. My name's Jesus. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to tell everybody. That's right. Amen. Right? When Christ saved you and he showed that, that he was the Savior, that's the right response on your behalf. I'm going to share this with people, right? And so that's what she does in verse 28. Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. This woman leaves the well with no water in her bucket, but with a well of living water springing up inside of her soul for eternal life. She went and she began to tell everyone who would listen about what happened at the well. Verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. I want you to notice some very important changes that take place in this woman when she experiences the grace and love of Jesus. One, she goes from living in fear to living in freedom. This woman was fully known by Jesus. Her sins, her dirt, her shame, her mess, all of the things that made her feel like she was not good enough, that she was unlovable, that she was maybe just, just an outcast. He saw all of that, and he had compassion for her. He loved her. He did not reject her or condemn her, but he brought her into his family. And when she realizes this, she goes from living in fear of other people to living in absolute freedom. Because when the Messiah knows you, when he knows all your deep, dark secrets, when he knows all of the terrible sins that you have committed or all the things that you're hiding, when he knows all of that, and instead of rejecting you, he loves you, and he, and he makes a place for you in his family? When Jesus the Messiah accepts you, who cares about what these other people think about you? This freedom leads her to no longer avoiding the crowds of people. Instead, she's finding and making crowds of people. And she's telling them, come see the man who told me everything I ever did, right? She goes from isolating herself and being alone to finding others and leading them, telling them her story and leading them to Jesus, right? And that's the next big thing that happens, right? She starts living with purpose, her painful memories have become a powerful message. You have to imagine that this woman's history was not something that she just wanted to talk about. We know that much. Jesus brought it up, and she's like, let's have a theology debate. Let me tell you, my friends, I love theology, okay? And I love talking about it. But there's a point where you've got to get to where you're just like, ah, Let's theology. Let's do it, right? And so, like, this woman, she's like, I don't want to talk about that, right? It's painful. It's hurt. It's hard. Like, all of this shame that I carry, all of this guilt that I feel because of my life and what I've done, 
those memories were painful, but look at what she's doing. She's running through the town, and she's saying, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. They know what she did. That's why she's hiding from them, right? It's not a secret. They know, right? But instead of feeling shame, instead of feel, she's feeling freedom, and she's going out, and this, this painful memory becomes a powerful message. The Messiah knows all about my imperfections. He knows all about my checkered past, my sins. He knows all about it. And he loved me. And he called me his. And he brought me into his family. And he saved me. And if he can save me, then he can save you. And because of her testimony, many people were saved. Many people came out to hear Jesus. And they wanted to see this man who told her everything she ever did. And they wanted to know why all of a sudden she's come out of the, out of the darkness, out of the shadows. And she's just running around sharing this message like it's, like it's something to be proud of now. You know? She goes from <clears throat> just living, just, just, just getting by, to living with purpose. Thirdly, she came with an empty bucket, and she, she leaves with no bucket, right? But she begins living fulfilled, right? This woman walked the well that day with an empty bucket, just looking for water, ashamed of her sins, and spiritually dead in them. But she leaves with no bucket, and a well of living water springing up inside her soul for eternal life. She left more fulfilled than any bucket of water could ever make her feel. She came to the well a prisoner to fear and shame, but she left in freedom. She came to the well wanting answers from the Messiah, and she left with purpose. And she came to the well spiritually empty, but she left fulfilled. Everything changed at the well. It's crazy, but in, in a real way, that woman represents each and every one of us. In some way, Jesus broke into your life just to meet you. Because he loves you. We prayed and we asked God, what kind of church do you want us to build here? What kind of church do you want to build here? Who do you want us to be? How will you reach people far from you in Ypsilanti through this church? And we believe that God was giving us this answer here in John 4. We believe that God is calling us uh, to be the well. Now, just as this well was a source of pain and a hurt for this woman, it became a place where she encountered the love and grace of Jesus. We believe God wants us to be a church that will demonstrate the grace and love of Jesus as we lead others to him. We believe that God is leading us to be the well, a safe place for imperfect people to meet Jesus and discover freedom, purpose, and fulfillment in him. A lot of people don't see churches that way. It's not a safe place. It's a place of judgment. It's a place where you dare not be imperfect. You dare not show that there's a flaw in your life because it will be picked apart and everyone will look at you different. But I believe that God is calling us as believers to model imperfection. Because each and every single one of us is not perfect, but we are forgiven. And every single day, we have to confess and to repent of our sins. Every single day, I mess up and I make mistakes and I say, God, will you forgive me? And we call out to him. And in his lovingness, and his, pa- his love and his patience, his kindness, he walks alongside you through it all. 
And if God can patiently walk with me as I constantly make an idiot out of myself and do things that he has said specifically not to do, then I believe that he's calling us to be patient with other imperfect people as they learn to walk with him too. I spoke with a pastor in the area and he told me that he received a call from a woman who was gay and she wanted to know if she could come to his church. And he told her, yes, not knowing if she would ever really show up. And she showed up one Sunday with, you know, went to the, you know, came in and and sat through the service and she came up to him afterwards and she had tears in her eyes and she said, thank you for letting me come. There are people all around us who are longing to either come back to Jesus because they're, they're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for all these things out in the world, and they're not finding it, right? They're coming up, and, and it's just not, satisfi- it's not satisfying them. They're just like, it's, it's, I'm missing something, right? And so then the Lord draws them, and they're like, ah, I feel like maybe I need to go to church. I feel like maybe I need to give Jesus a chance, but they're afraid of how church people will treat them if they really knew what their life was like if they knew their dirt, if they knew their their sin, if they knew their shame. Jesus loved this woman. Five husbands and and the guy she was living with didn't stop that. If we can't patiently love people in the middle of their mess, then they will not be in church long enough to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel. They will never know that that God offers them freedom from the bondage of sin. They will never know that he has a purpose for their life and they will never experience real, true fulfillment in him because they will be pushed out before they ever get a chance. It's not our job to change people. It's our job to love them and lead them to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job to change them, right? We lead them to Christ, and Christ saves them. Not me, not you, right? And it's as they begin to follow him that they learn, I am supposed to die to myself, and and God loves me just the way that I am, but he loves me too much to leave me here, and he wants me to die to myself and grow closer to him and become more and more like him. The well, by God's grace, will be a grace-filled, gospel-preaching, disciple-making, church-planting church. That is who God is calling us to be. And, and so we've been trying to get ready for church to be a little messy, right? Because when lost and unchurched people, when people who are far from God start coming to church, it's going to get a little messy. You know, they may not always know what to say or when to stand or when to sit or what to wear or any of these things. And it gets a little messy sometimes. But, but we want to see lives transformed by the gospel. We want people to discover uh, the, the purpose that God has for their life, to experience the fulfillment of being brought into his family and to know true freedom in him. When that happens, I believe that they will do exactly what that woman at the well did. They will be sent to tell all the people they know about Christ. Our desire is that at the well, people will be known fully, that they will be loved completely, and they will be sent to be on mission with Jesus now, I want to thank you guys. I want to thank you, Living Water, for letting us come, for inviting us, allowing us to share how God has been speaking to us, how he's been challenging us. And I know that the motivation that we find in John 4, it resonates with you. I mean, come on, right? Living Water, the well, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're John 4 people, you know? <clears throat> and I know that it hits a chord with you. And so, brothers and sisters, it's so good to be able to be here to worship together. And as I close, I just want to leave you with this challenge, okay? Are you a safe person 
for an imperfect person to meet Jesus with. If that Samaritan woman had come to you, if she met you at the well, if she met you at Starbucks, if she met you at Kroger, would your interaction with her lead her closer to Jesus or would it push them further away? If the imperfect people of Ypsilanti bump into you, will they encounter the love and grace of Christ? Or will they find condemnation? Will they receive judgmental glares? My challenge to all of us in this room is to answer that question to yourself. Now, I'm not asking you at all to compromise Scripture, to compromise convictions. John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, right? He spoke the hardest truths against sin. I promise you, you cannot have a higher form or higher standard of righteousness than him. And yet he was called the friend of sinners because of the grace that he had for them, because of the love and the compassion that he had for them. Jesus has called us to join him on mission, and his mission is to seek and save the lost. When lost people meet you, when people who are far from God meet you, are they drawn closer to him or are they pushed further away? My challenge to you is just to take a moment and to be honest with yourself before the Lord and to answer that question. And so just in a moment, we're just going to pray quietly and then I'll close us in prayer and then we will, we will sing our last song. But I want you to think about that question. My prayer is that we would align our hearts and our minds with him. Because God... He loves broken people and he wants to save them. I know because I am one and he saved me. As the music plays, will you just ask yourself that question? Are you a safe person for imperfect people to meet Jesus? Are they drawn closer to him or further from him when they interact with you? Let's pray. love such imperfect people as us and that you would make us your sons and daughters if we trust in you and we've been adopted into your family God I pray that as we leave here we would not feel that church is over and then we just go back to the rest of our lives but help us to realize Lord that that if we belong to you we have a story to tell. That if we are part of your family, then we have a message to share with the people around us. A kind and gracious and loving message. One of compassion that says, Jesus knows all of my dirt and he loves me. God, I pray that as we leave here, you would help us to have a heart and a mind that is in line with yours. 
And then our desire would, to see, would be to see people who are far from you come to know, love, and trust you. God, I pray that the, the words of this song would be our prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.